0: Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the years of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done." And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until the evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ipthof of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter in law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen.
1: Good morning, church. Uh, Good to see all of you. Uh, Before we get into the message, I wanted to introduce a brother who's here for the first time, I believe uh, from Mason. Uh, Timothy Kang is with us. Timothy, where are you uh, sitting? Over there. Let's give Timothy a warm welcome. Uh, Glad you can join us today, brother. Uh, Because it's been two weeks since we uh, last looked at Ruth, I wanted to spend some time retelling the story up to this point, uh, so please bear with me. Uh, Our story began with, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And we said that the period of the judges, if you can recall, it was one of the darkest Moments in Jewish history because of the blatant uh, rebellion and disobedience of God's people, and so the famine they experienced was an expression of God's discipline, right? His expression of judgment upon them, and so we were then introduced to Elimelech, meaning "My God is King," who was the husband of Naomi, which meant sweet and pleasant, and uh, they were the parents of Mahlon and Chilion, and who we really don't know anything about other than the fact that their names meant sick and dying respectively. And so uh, you are told never to name your kids uh, those dreadful names, okay? The iron of the story was that Elimelech, my God is king, didn't really act as if God was actually his king because he was driven by fear instead of by faith. And as a result, he relocated his family from Bethlehem, the house of bread, to Moab. Why? Well, in his mind, it was to keep his family alive, it was to keep his family safe. But instead of surviving in Moab, Elimelech died along with his two sons. So one tragedy is followed by another tragedy, and Naomi became this very bitter old woman. Well, what did this mean for Ruth and Orpah? Well, it meant that they had to decide on whether to follow their mother-in-law to a foreign land or go back to their own homes in Moab where they grew up. Orpah decided that a monotheistic faith or an exclusive faith that worshipped Yahweh as the one true God wasn't worth following, especially if he didn't guarantee a marriage and children, which would have offered her security. And so she bailed and went back to Moab to worship Moloch and Chemosh instead. Ruth, on the other hand, decided to be loyal to Naomi, not so much because of her affection for Naomi, but because of her greater affection for Yahweh. And so it was in the midst of her tragedies, right, Ruth's faith shined for us very brightly, and we were especially inspired by her words, your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. It's been a great story so far, uh, but it gets even better. So today's outline will be in three parts. Part one, the godly qualities of Ruth and Boaz. Uh, We need more of these Ruths and Boazes in this world. I'll I'll be spending the majority of time in part one uh, because there's a good good amount to unpack there. Uh, Part two, God's perfect timing. Uh, And I want you to understand that There really is no accidents in life, right? Um, We shouldn't be thinking, oh, what a coincidence. We should rather be thinking, oh, this is divine providence. And I hope I can show you that through this story today. And then part three, how our hearts can become soft again as we consider God's Hesed love for us. And I'll unpack what Hesed love means. It's an important word that you should all become familiar with. Okay? Part one. Uh, the Godly Qualities of Ruth and Boaz. In chapter two, or chapter today, the spotlight is no longer focused on Naomi and on her tragedies, right? Uh, Naomi is still present for sure, but we're gonna um, shift our focus to the two characters before us, Ruth and Boaz. So let me first elaborate on who Boaz is since he's introduced to us for the first time in our story, Okay. It first says that he is this worthy man. He is a worthy man, we're told, right? And there's this intentional contrast being made uh, with, with uh, the other male characters that, that were introduced earlier, right? Elimelech, he was like, blah, you know. Malon, Kilian, we don't know who they are, they died. But Boaz, finally, he is a worthy man. He was a godly man, a man of faith, man of high esteem, Literally, his name means strength or mighty one. He is, in my mind, what all of our men ought to aspire to become, right? He was such a godly character here. He wasn't addicted to video games or K-dramas. He wasn't wasting time scrolling through his social media feed every hour of the day because he was diligent. He worked hard and he built a business that was able to actually provide for people. We need more men like that. Uh, normally, when you value hard work, your employees can easily hate you for it. But notice how his employees actually respect him. And it's because, again, he was an honorable and godly man, right? This man is, is, this, this, uh, his name was Boaz. Uh, and this, this name, I, I really, I was, you know, seriously considering, instead of Caleb, considering naming, you know, my first boy Boaz, I, I loved him so much, but we we do need more men like him today. There's nothing toxic about valuing hard work and wanting to provide and protect others around you. Let me tell you one one of the reasons why our ministry has, relatively speaking, more men than other churches. You know that most churches have proportionally more women than men. I'm sure you noticed, but it's, it's different here. And it's because we made it very clear from the beginning of our ministry that we are committed to raising up Boaz-like men, right? And the truth is that most men, they actually want to be like Boaz. And so they seek out churches that are not afraid to say that men are called to be the primary leaders in the home and in the church, as well as in the the God-honoring culture. And that is why we have a good amount of Boaz-like men essentially Christ-like men, humble servants, yet bold and not afraid to take on difficult tasks. But let me highlight a few more of Boaz's godly traits. In our story, notice Boaz, he cares for his workers. Look how he greets his workers, right? The Lord be with you all, All right? That's the first words that comes out of his mouth when he sees them in the morning. The Lord be with you all. I bet that's not how your boss or your manager greets you in the morning, right? And look at their response. Their response is, the Lord bless you. Right? I mean, is that what your relationship is like with your boss? I highly doubt it. And you can tell here that his workers respect him as their boss. You know, he's probably not someone they would want to hang out with during happy hour after work, but nonetheless, right, they respect him, right? Uh, I'm sure some of you have, uh, remember hearing this from me, but there's a difference between being a guy's guy and a man's man, okay? A guy's guy is this kind of cool, kind of chill uh, male figure that you love to hang out with because he's fun, and there are plenty of those guys out there. Yeah, some of you are like a guy's guy. But then there's a man's man. A man's man is like Boaz, okay? Uh, not, not that fun, probably, right? Not someone you wanna hang out with, but you respect him, right, because he's responsible and he's godly, He's a respectable character. Uh, Another thing we learn about Boaz is that he has a watchful eye, okay? And he notices those around him who are vulnerable, right? Guys, guys are not like this usually. (laughs) Uh, But Boaz is like this. In our story, Boaz quickly notices Ruth and he offers to provide for her and protect her, He tells the men, do not touch her, do not harass her, In other words, don't don't even think about assaulting this woman. And he calls Ruth, my daughter, and tells Ruth, look, when you're thirsty, drink what the young men have drawn. And this is, of course, an example of chivalry, right? Nowadays, women want men to treat them like other men. Boaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. I will treat you like a woman with more tenderness and care. And Ruth is actually very confused about this because this is the first time since she left Moab, that someone is treating her with such kindness and respect. And she asks, why are you being so nice to me? I don't get it. What's your motive? I'm not even a virgin. I have a mother-in-law who's kind of crazy. I'm living like a beggar. Why are you so nice to me? All right, does Ruth look her best? Of course not. Right? She dressed, she's dressed in rags. She smells like the field. It's just not her finest moment. But nonetheless, Boaz finds her attractive, because he's attracted to her faith and her character. Right? Ruth asks him, why are you being so nice? And look, look at how he responds in verse 11. Boaz answers, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. In other words, I know your story. Right? I know the decision you had to make. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. In other words, Ruth, your character, your faith, your reputation, they precede you. I admire and respect you a great deal. You may look bad, you may smell even worse, but you are beautiful. Right? That's Boaz. That's his perspective. That's how he's thinking. Boaz is also a man of action. Right, Verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done, and may a full reward be given to you by the Lord, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He essentially prays over her, and then he does what he can do to provide for her. Brothers and sisters, we can learn from this example because Boaz is teaching us that we should all strive to be the partial answer to our very own prayers. So, for example... If you pray, God, please provide for my family, how should you respond to that prayer? You should, of course, work hard right, to be the very means of God's provision for your family. Right? If you pray, God, grant my children the gift of faith, how should you respond to that prayer? Well, you should team up with your wife, and you should discuss how you both can be better parents together, how you can take more ownership over the education of your children so that they can be instructed in the Lord, you see, and develop a Christian worldview, right? You don't just say, God, grant my kids faith, right? You take action. You become an answer to your own prayer. If you pray, Lord, and some of you pray this, Lord, please let this church have a Korean summer school program, <laughs> right? That's for some of your prayers. I, I heard the cries. <laughs> I heard the cries of the people, okay? And so I, I met, in, in, in striving to be an answer to my, even my own prayers, I, I pray the same prayer, I met with the elders and thought, how, how can we be a partial answer to those prayers? And we, we said, maybe uh, out of the generosity of our people, because you've been so generous throughout the year, uh, we can probably offer some extra financial support to prop up the summer school program this year, knowing that by next year, it will likely become more self-sufficient, right? And so. I already emailed some of you, but despite the fact that they haven't reached their 40-person threshold, we are going to hold our Korean summer school program, right? Praise the Lord. I guess you're not that happy. You can sign your kids up now, okay? That's Boaz, okay? That's what Boaz teaches us. Let me also highlight uh, just a couple things from Ruth. I know we spent some time... Uh, talking about her last time last, two weeks ago, but um, you know, what stands out about Ruth in this chapter is her courage and initiative to provide for Naomi and herself. Right? She says, "Mother-in-law, let me go to the field and I will glean. I will go. I know it's risky. It's dangerous, but I'm going to go. And the question I have is this: Why, why isn't Naomi joining her on the field, right? I mean, if Naomi is healthy enough to make right, the journey from Moab to Bethlehem, I'm sure she's able to work at least a, a few hours on the field right, to, to support the family. But I, I guess what, what happens when you're depressed is that you, you sort of like, you become paralyzed, right? When you're bitter, when you have this sort of victim mentality, uh, you're not motivated to do much. You're not very helpful. And perhaps that, that's where Naomi is in this story. And so Naomi stays home while Ruth takes it upon herself to provide for her her family of two now, right? And I want you to know that there's a difference here between gleaning and regular harvesting, right? A certain system was set up uh, where when you were gleaning, you're part of this this welfare program that wasn't simply just kind of giving freebies out to people, wasn't giving free handouts. It was more of a you-must-work-to-eat sort of welfare program program because the poor were not simply to depend on free handouts from the state where they were allowed to glean in the fields, essentially picking up scraps that were left behind by the farmers. And by law, the farmers were required to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so that the poor can survive off of that, right? And so though we can't always Directly apply Old Testament law to our own modern context, you know, we can still see God's wisdom revealed through His law, can't we? Whatever law it may be. And we can still do our best to apply the basic principles we find in those laws. And so, one thing I do know, and I'm sure most of you would agree with me, that giving free money to people is a terrible long-term policy that doesn't really have any support from Scripture as far as I know, right? If you're going to find a passage that kind of backs it up, you let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll have you educate me. Now, do I believe that governments should have a welfare system in place? Yes, of course. But I also believe that governments should encourage, as best they can, they should encourage the poor to work in some manner, right, instead of giving out free things all the time, as our own government is especially great at, and so look what happens over the long term. It's unsustainable, and right? people abuse the system, of course. Of course, you know, it's like we're glad when government gives us free checks, I'll take it, right, but, but it's, not, it's not a sustainable policy long term, all right? Uh, one commentator, again, I want to just kind of give you an idea how, how the system was set up back in, in this uh, ancient time. The Mosaic law, he writes, display particular compassion for the alien, the orphan, and the widow by prescribing that the harvesters deliberately leave the grain in the corners of their fields for these, these vulnerable class, the, the classes, right, the, the marginalized, right? the social outcasts. So that, that's what we're seeing here. Now, remember, Ruth is a, not only a woman, but she's a foreigner, right? Uh, if she was a Jewish woman, you know, it would be, be easier for her, but she was a, she was a Moabite woman, and see, Jews did not like foreigners. Right? In the Jewish culture, being a poor, Moabite woman was a deadly combination. And so Ruth here, you've got to know, she, she was acting in faith, she was being courageous, and she did what she could to lead and provide for her family. Okay? You all know that I... I encourage male leadership, right? But if you're a husband, well, sorry, if, if your husband is dead and there are no men around because her two sons are dead, then the Ruths, right, the, the Esther's of the world, the Deborah's, they, they have to step up and they have to get the job done. Of course they do. It's like when I'm not home, right, Joyce, she does everything, right? She, she's really been like a real life Elastigirl, right? One of our favorite movies is The Incredibles for that reason, right? But when I'm home, right, when I'm I'm home, there is this expectation that I would step in and to lead the family, right, to be the primary disciplinarian, right, to be the final decision maker, to take that responsibility. When we're driving, I'm the one driving normally, when the family's, you know, in the minivan, why? Because I don't want her to take that responsibility. I, I want that burden on me if something ever were to happen, you see. That's one, one example of how that plays out. I mentioned this also about Ruth last time, but Ruth's loyalty and commitment to her mother-in-law is uncommon, and this should not be overlooked, right? The chapter itself ends with, it's interesting, right? It ends with these words, and she lived with her mother-in-law. I mean, why, why end that segment with, and she lived with her mother-in-law, right? Why would the author include that detail? But well, I, I think it's because most women would never choose to live with their own mother-in-law if they had the choice. But here we see an amazing thing happening. She lived with her mother-in-law. Like she basically stuck to her promise, right? You see this, this great character uh, being highlighted in Ruth. Not only did she love her mother-in-law, she was loyal to her, right? She Covenanted to stick with Naomi through thick and thin it's uncommon it's an uncommon faith. So we see Ruth being full of faith in the Lord, right she's kind to her mother-in-law she 's humble, she 's courageous, and she 's a hard worker right? isn 't Ruth beautiful? I love Ruth. I said it last time, but I 'm happy to say it again. Sisters, you should aspire to cultivate these godly, Ruth-like qualities you see here. Men, you should desire Ruth-like women, okay? Unless you're already married, okay? <laughs> uh, just kidding. You, you guys, you know, sometimes, you know, I look at you, you're too stiff, so I'm trying to inject some humor sometimes, okay? Parents, parents, move on, move on. Parents, you should commit to raising up your daughters to be like Ruth, okay? Uh, it's a very godly example before us. Part two, all right, I'll be quick on this. Uh, God's perfect timing, think about that. Right? We shouldn't be thinking coincidence all the time, we should be thinking, ah, divine providence. God is in this, right, God is in the details, he's in this story, right? And it, it's true, God is not passive in this story. Look at verse three, it says, the author says, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, really, right? Was this an accident? Was this coincidence? She, she happened to come? You know, strictly speaking, the Bible does not believe in accidents or luck or coincidences. You know, Proverbs 16, says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's like when you roll dice, right? Right? It's like, it's like coincidence, right? No. <laughs> Proverbs says no. Every decision is from the Lord. He, he governs all of these details. And so the author of Ruth is using this language of she happened to come to part of the field as this rhetorical device, basically pointing out that this is really no accident. Right? This is the hand of God working through providence. The author wants us to recognize that God is, in fact, orchestrating all of these events, Ruth so happened to glean the field, okay. It so happened that Boaz was from the same clan as Ruth's deceased father-in-law, Elimelech, right. It so happened that Boaz was a godly man who cared for widows and social outcasts. Okay. It's, not, it's not a mixture of coincidences here. This is God orchestrator from beginning to end. Brothers, sisters, even in your own lives, if you're not paying attention, it may seem as if things just coincidentally happen. But if you're wise, you will learn to acknowledge that God's hands are in the details of every, every moment, right? every uh, event, every tragedy, every joy that you experience. God is in the details. So instead of thinking of mere coincidence all the time, think divine providence, and learn to give thanks to God for the unexpected blessings that you experience on a daily basis. Amen. Part three: How our hearts can become soft again as we consider God's hesed love for us. Okay, try to say that hesed. You don't have to say it out loud. Just kind of say it. Say it quietly hesed. Just get used to it. Right? Hesed love. You now, what in the world does hesed mean? You know, well, hesed is the Hebrew word. To describe God's special covenantal love for us as His people, okay, it's not any kind of love. It's not a generic kind of love, you know. It's not. It's not the love that God, you know, uh, describes in John three sixteen. God so loved the world. That's kind of a general love, okay. Hesed is a specific, unique, special. It's a. It's a narrow, narrower love directed to His people only. His people, right. It's like the love that I show to sort of my children, especially to my children, my family. Right? Uh, sometimes it's translated in the Bible as God's loving kindness, or God's steadfast love, or just kindness, as you'll see in our passage today. Let me give you a few examples of how, how hesed is used in the Bible, okay? Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, this is the context where Jonathan, uh, his dad, King Saul, is majorly screwed up and things are just chaotic. And Jonathan's speaking to David, right, knowing that David has all the right to eliminate all future threats, all of Saul's line. I mean, back in those days, you could just, you know, kill all the, all the family, uh, relatives, and, and sons. Uh, and so Jonathan's speaking to David here, if I'm still alive, David, Show me Hesed. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your Hesed, your, your steadfast love from my house forever. Right? So that, that's how Hesed is used in that context. So covenant love, right? Hesed love is a love that says, I will love you even if I'm not really benefiting from this relationship. You see, it's a deeper love, it's sort of a more of an unconditional kind of. Love, it's how God loves us. It's different from how we normally relate to people. Like you scratch my back, then of course I'll scratch yours. You do me a favor, I'll do you a favor. That's how we tend to love one another, right? No, God's love is deeper than that. It's a love that you grant, even if, it, if, if you're not really benefiting from a particular, particular relationship. It's, it's a love that's not based on fleeting emotions. Some other examples of hesed in the Bible. Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, hesed, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Okay? And Numbers chapter 14, here when Moses prays for the people because of their grumbling, they're not happy, they're discontented, and they're just complaining to God. And Moses says, please. Pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, your hesed love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Lord, be patient. Right? Remember your hesed love. Right? And so the idea of God's hesed love is a central theme, not only throughout the Bible, but in this specific story of Ruth as well. Right? Look at verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed, referring to uh, Boaz, right? May, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. And so Boaz's generosity to Ruth serves as a practical example of how God's hesed love plays out in real life. Right? It's God's hesed love that begins to actually melt Naomi's heart because this is the first time in the story we actually see evidence that Naomi's heart may, may be softening toward the Lord. Right? She, she's beginning to see that God may, in fact, be fulfilling his redemptive purposes through her past and present sufferings. The commentator Duguid, or Duguid even suggests that there may even be a hint of repentance in Naomi's heart, right, as she strongly urges Ruth to stay in the fields of Boaz, right, verse 22, right, don't go into any other field, Ruth. Ruth, stay in the fields of Boaz. And Duguid writes, who in their right mind would go elsewhere? But that is precisely the point, because Naomi and Elimelech, remember, They had displayed exactly that kind of foolish blindness so many years before when they chose to leave the field of God and go into wandering off to settle in the fields of Moab. So here, it's very possible, Dugud is saying, that Naomi, the mother-in-law, was basically warning Ruth not to repeat her mistake again. Stay in the fields of Boaz. In other words, stay in the field of the Lord. Do not wander off like I did many years ago, daughter-in-law. Let me bring the message to a close by sharing one final thought um, that ought to give you some hope, brothers and sisters, as you battle against your own personal feelings of anger frustration, maybe feelings of bitterness, because we all, we all have those at times, don't we? There's one doctrine that's called the doctrine of the immutability of God, okay? Bear with me, I know that's, uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound all that exciting, and honestly, <laughs> I didn't think too much of the immutability of God when I was younger, because yeah, it sounds dull and boring and irrelevant, but the older I get, I must say, the more I love it, okay? Because it basically teaches us that God does not change. Okay? He does not change, right? Like if someone is perfect, change is not possible, right? Because what's there to change if someone is perfect? And that's the case with God. He's perfect, brother, sister. so his character, Today is the same as it was several thousand years ago when Boaz so happened to encounter Ruth. The same God, same character, same qualities present. The God of today is the same God of yesterday. Right, God is the same today as he was when there was a famine in the land And then in the next chapter, there's an abundant harvest. You see, I hope you're trying to understand my point. Brothers and sisters, if if God were like us and he was constantly changing because of his mood swings or fickle emotions, then we would all be in trouble. All hope would be lost. There there would be no Hesed love to count on because. Who knows who the God of today would be as compared to the God of old, if he's constantly changing? But because God is immutable and unchanging, we can rest in the knowledge that if God is your God and He calls you His own, you're a season of famine, your season of frustration, your season of anger, of bitterness will sooner or later turn into a season of harvest and you will get to experience his abundant grace because God is unchanging. That aspect of God cannot change, does not change. And as a new covenant people, if, if you still don't know what that means, You need to listen to the audio that will be made available soon, right, Pastor Shio? As a new covenant people, we're given an even greater assurance that a season of abundance will come because we know that Jesus endured the ultimate famine that was meant to condemn us all. but because Jesus died in our place and absorbed God's judgment on our behalf, we can be comforted by the promise that a season of abundant harvest is in our future, without a doubt. So brothers and sisters, though life may be difficult at times, we all know that. We have our seasons of famines. We have our seasons of distress. Though that may happen, do not lose hope. Remember God has said love for you, and recognize the various ways in which he's been watching over you. He is in the details. Even Naomi's bitter heart, notice is softening in our story, and so can yours. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the godly examples of Boaz and Ruth, and for revealing to us your kindness and faithfulness through them we also thank you for reminding us that your timing is perfect and that nothing happens by coincidence but rather by your divine providence and with such knowledge help us to trust in your plan for our lives even when we don't quite understand it and as we consider your headset love for us we ask that you would soften our hearts and renew our spirits may we be filled with a deep sense of gratitude and all for your never-ending love and mercy toward us we ask for your continual guidance and protection as we go forth from this place may the lessons we've learned today take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives we pray all these things in the precious name of your son jesus christ amen amen